All right, here we go. This is 20 questions with Pastor Mike. Um, I am Mike Winger, and I'm here to try to give you biblical answers, help you learn to think biblically about everything. That means to process the very random and weird situations of life, the very radically strange things that we go through from a biblical perspective so that we could try to have not just pat answers, but actually sort of following in the steps that the Lord has given us according to scripture, with, with our theology, our practice, all that good stuff. Anyway, question number one. Oh, where did I leave my... Aha! I forgot my little button. Question number one is from Matt M. While you guys are loading your other questions, I'll do 20 today. Matt M. says, I write lyrics for songs, and I'm wondering if there are any marriage songs based on biblical theology. I spent years writing one to my wife, and it still doesn't work. Looking for examples to follow. Thank you. All right, Matt. Yeah, I have a few things to share with you. Let me let me start first just in general about the idea of Christian love songs. Let's just talk about this for a second. Um, uh, okay, when, when I was younger, I wanted every song I played on my guitar to be a worship song. And that was a beautiful thing. That was a beautiful act of love towards the Lord. But that And that's, I think, a nice attitude if someone's like, I just want every song I play on this guitar to be for the Lord. Like that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, that's a wonderful act of love. But it's something else to suggest that every song in existence has to be a worship song. I don't think God meant to limit the use of music only for worship. I think worship is the highest use of music. Worship is the most glorious way to do music, but it's not meant to be the only way we do music as Christians. And so you could use music in comedy and you can use music to talk about like food you enjoy eating or, I mean, it could be anything. So that being said, I think Christian love songs are a fantastic idea, a fantastic idea. We live in a world that has perverted the, the act of sex and has taken it out of its sanctity, out of its holiness of marriage, and has just turned it into its own sort of obsessive sex-focused thing. And Christian love songs can be a beautiful and poetic way to sort of communicate, not just with the lyrics, but just with the whole feeling of the song, the goodness and godliness of you know, saving yourself for each other to have intimate, exclusive marriage relations. I think that's a beautiful thing. Like that's something we want to have more songs about. So I asked my wife, because she's better at this stuff, to help us find a couple songs at least. So there's one called, um, uh, by Sanctus Real, called Lead Me Because I Can't Do This Alone, which is actually a prayer to God, but I think it's a beautiful thing. It stirs my heart as a husband to have God's attitude towards my marriage. I think it's great. Another song is called Love Never Fails by Brandon Heath. Uh, me and my wife actually sang that at a friend's wedding. Um, and it's just based off 1 Corinthians 13. And I think we can find our scripture, our, our inspiration in scripture. So you have like Genesis 1 and 2 talking about the nature of marriage. You've got Ephesians 5 talking about the relationship between Christ and the church. Like really look at those passages, Matt, what is what I recommend. Look at those passages, really think through the meaning and the depth of them. Don't just casually glance, but look at them. Look at Proverbs and what it says about husbands or wives you know, one side or the other and think of how that relates in your own marriage. And you could, you could then, obviously you're going to write it in a more contemporary style than sort of the style in which it was written, uh, you know, in a different context, different culture in the old Testament, but you could draw from that. Um, Song of Solomon also is an interesting example here because now, now we're going to get a little risque perhaps. Um, the Bible has a song in it that is an intimate song. I mean, the song of Solomon, intimate song, between a man and a woman about them wanting to be together. And it's not shameful. There's a lot of euphemisms that are used there. And I think there's an example there for us that when we do discuss um, sexual things in public, it's better to use euphemisms because we are not trying to stir other people up towards lust, but we, we do want to 
speak highly of the wonderful thing that is marriage. Christians, when they save themselves till marriage, they shouldn't get married and then, th- and then be ashamed of being together intimately. Like that's that's weird. That's wrong. You you should be like, yes, this is wonderful. Like this, the, the marriage acts, the things that happen in the bedroom are private. They're not shameful. They're wonderful. They're to be enjoyed and and be very happy about this. That's my point. Um, so to, tr- to put it into a song, if it's a song just between you and your wife, I think you could sing intimate, as intimately as you like. If it's a song that's to be sung from, for others to hear, I think you move towards euphemisms or softening the language, not out of shame, but out of protecting the privacy of those things. And Song of Solomon kind of does that, although it's pretty, it's pretty risque. It really is. Um, so the last advice I'll give you is this. Don't make it perfect. If you guys are writing songs, songwriters in general, um, don't, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be the ultimate love song of all love songs. Just write something nice for your spouse. That would be my encouragement. I wrote my, my wife a love song years ago and that helped me because I couldn't get past, I just wanted it to be the, the best song. And I just gave up and said, I'm just going to write a song that I think is nice. It connects to some scriptures in our relationship. And I did that. Anyway, um, I'll, I'll, I'll read to you some of the lyrics. I have it right here. I'm not going to sing it, but I'll read to you some of the lyrics. Um, so the verse is just, uh, it's true that two are better than just one. We bear each other's burdens and seek the son who is our hope in our life. And poetically, I, I, I'm, honestly, it's not that fantastic. It just speaks of our relationship. The whole, that verse in Ecclesiastes is, connects to our relationship in a special way. The pre-chorus says, uh, for a threefold cord is not easily broken. And with God, our Lord, we grow stronger each day. And as time flies by, we will glorify and enjoy the blessings of God. And the chorus is, I love you. It's taken these years, but we're finally here, and I love you. God's wonderful plan, your hand in my hand. Oh, I love you. It's real simple. It's not going to get any awards. I don't care. (laughs) No one's ever heard it anyways except for her. All right, next question. Let's go to number two. This is from Ryan Pauly, (laughs) who's literally asking me the question I asked him during his live stream. Ryan Pauly has his own YouTube channel. He goes live and does Q&As occasionally. And um, he's a friend of mine as well. And I, I went on and asked him this question. So he's putting it back at me. How do you explain Jude's apparent quote of the book of Enoch in verses 14 and 15? And he says, yes, I'm asking the same question back to you to see what you say now. <laughs> I just asked him a hard question just to mess with him. So I probably deserve to get one back. Here's the text so we can look at it on screen. Jude is the you know really short book. It's only one chapter. So we just usually refer to verses here. And here it says, it was also uh, about these, these are like false prophets, false teachers. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones to execute judgment and to convict all of the ungodly. And he's going to focus on that ungodly idea. To convict all of the ungodly, of all the ungodly, of the of their deeds of ungodliness that they committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Okay. That's like a quote from like the book of Enoch. Now the book of Enoch's not canonical. Like it's not part of scripture. And, and, and yes, that's my belief. I know there's a minority of people who not only believe that it should a very minority group of people who believe Enoch should be part of our old Testament Bible. Um, but they're also tend to be very passionate about it and rude in comment sections. How'd you guys get that way? <laughs> but anyways, um, the uh, the idea though is like, well, Jude quotes it, so it must be scripture. Uh, but Jude doesn't say scripture says this. He quotes e- Enoch here, yeah, but he doesn't say this is scripture. We also have some problems with the book of Enoch in general. 
the Jews didn't seem to receive it as part of their canon. Um, the, the church doesn't receive it as part of its canon. Like whatever large group of Christians you look at in history, you're generally not going to see Enoch as part of that. And so Jesus probably didn't have Enoch as part of his canon. Doesn't mean they didn't have it as a, as a book that they would read and look to ins look to for insights. There's other problems with Enoch is that it's not one book written at one time. It seems to have portions of Enoch from before, this is how I understand it, from before the time of Christ that Jude would have been exposed to. But there's also other portions that are after the time of Christ because that, that book, one book, is really more than one put together. That makes it very challenging, which means I think our best thing to do is to take uh, Jude's statement as, um, I'm just using an example from the book of Enoch. It might imply, at most, it might imply that Enoch is reliable on this count. Like what, what the book of Enoch says here is reliable, though we cannot say that that transfers to reliability in all areas. That's the most I think we could say about Jude here. You could say Jude is just quoting it to make a point. He's not even saying it's historically accurate. I would lean towards thinking Jude seems to think this part's historically accurate. The Holy Spirit's inspiring him exactly what to share. And so I'm going to trust that quote, but not necessarily the book of Enoch. That That's kind of how I would take it. And yeah, question number three, Jessica E says, God bless you, Pastor Mike. My question is this, according to Matthew 12, 40, Jesus predicted he would be dead for three days. But according to um, Matthew 28, 1 and Mark 69, it seems this wasn't the case. All right, let's look at these verses. Let's understand what, what the problem is. And then uh, I'm going to offer you guys what I think is the correct solution. Although I'll offer you as well. Another option that I don't take, but but others, some others do take because I just want you to be aware of it. So Matthew 12, 40, this verse says where Jesus is speaking and he says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is speaking of his death and resurrection. Very clearly, there's no debate here. He's, he says, I'll be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay. So we, we, we will say three days and three nights. Now, um, the next verse you quoted was Matthew 28. Now notice this, this is, this is still the same book, Matthew 28, verse one, still the same book. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now it's the first day of the week. Now that would imply that Jesus was uh, in the tomb on most counts. We're going to say from Friday to Sunday. So Friday he dies on Friday. He's put in the tomb on Friday, probably before sundown. He's then in the tomb all Friday evening on, on their view. Um, Saturday would begin in the evening. So he's in the tomb all through Saturday. And then Sunday comes, which starts in the evening. He's in the tomb. And in the morning on Sunday, he rises. That's not three days by any count, not three days and three nights by, by any count. So let's look at this next verse, which is Mark 16, 9. It says, now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared to Mary Magdalene. So the whole point here is it was the first day of the week. Now, the um, we'll come back to the issue of the ending of Mark. I'm actually going to be teaching on that relatively soon, so I'm just going to pass that over. But the, um, the dilemma is this. If Jesus dies on Friday, which I didn't explain why we think that, but let's just grant that for now. Most people would hold that view, uh, as I understand it. Uh, if Jesus dies on Friday, he rises on Sunday, how is that three days and three nights? And my answer to this question, I answered more thoroughly in another video, which where I did a um, supposed contradictions in the Bible. I did a series of three videos on the topic a while back, and it's in my Evidence for the Bible playlist, which you can find on YouTube or on BibleThinker.org. And yeah, look for the Evidence for the Bible playlist. You can find those. 
Um, the short answer though, the less thorough answer is this. It was a Jewish idiom. Now this is going to sound weird when I say it. I understand that, but it's true. <laughs> there was a Jewish idiom where they would say things like three days and three nights, and it wasn't referring to a literal three days and three nights. That sounds weird because we don't have an idiom like that in English. But let me give you an example of another Jewish idiom. There's a Jewish idiom about pregnancy that says having it in the belly. When in, in fact, in Luke, when it says that Mary was pregnant, found to be pregnant, it actually says in, in the Greek, she was having it in the belly. What does that mean? Having it in the belly? She's like hosting an event of some kind in her belly. It doesn't make sense outside that context, right? But when you understand it's an idiom, you go, okay, let's translate it differently. There's an idiom, and we do have evidence of this, and I share it in that, in a, in that other video, uh, both in Hosea, I believe it is. Um, I doubt I could find it off the top of my head. Um, probably not. Let me... Uh, Probably not. Let me see real quick if I could find it, just because I know some of you would be interested in seeing it right now. No, I, I, I'm not going to be able to find it real quick, and I don't want to delay and slow down the stream and just lose people's attention. But I talk about in that video. Um, we actually have this in the Old Testament where um, after three days, like, or the, the term three days and three nights is used, and then the fulfillment of that is seen as happening on the third day. Now, now that's a conflict. We should acknowledge it. This is, okay, on the surface, it seems like a conflict. Three days and three nights. If you wait three days and three nights, then the thing that happens next is not on the third day, it's on the fourth day. Because you've accomplished a full three days and three nights, now it's on the fourth day. But the New Testament also is consistent. It says that Jesus rose, right, three days and three nights later, an idiom, and then he rose on the third day on the third day, right? On the third day Christ rose. We also have a scripture that says that. So the best understanding to my knowledge is just that. It's a Jewish idiom. Now it's also true that in their culture, they could view any part of a day as a full day. Now this, again, it might sound weird because you're not part of their culture. Of course, other cultures seem strange to you, but they would view any part of a day as a full day. Now, if Jesus is put in the tomb on Friday before sundown, then Saturday comes. So he's in the tomb Friday. He's in the tomb Saturday. He rises on Sunday. That's three days. And that would be calculated as if it was three full days. Any part of a day could be calculated as a full day. I hope that that helps. I have more details with more, um, uh, like I think I quote the Talmud and stuff like that in that other uh, series. Hopefully someone might be able to find the video and link it somewhere. That'd be nice. <laughs> I'll link it below if I find it too. You can check the comments or check the uh, video description. All right, number four, Simeon Batha says, Hi, Pastor Mike. Uh, I is apologizing to people sinned against um, by lust always necessary and to what extent? It must be if they know about it, but what if they don't know about it or if they're indifferent or hard to contact? Okay, so like this is, I've heard this before too. The idea is like, uh, let's say that you as a Christian, you want to obey the Lord and and um, there's a person in your life that you've you've been you've been lusting after. You've been struggling with this thing, and you're feeling very repentant. You're very you're pushing yourself away from that, but you feel bad, and you desire to go and reconcile with them, and and you feel like maybe you should. Maybe I should go and tell that person. I'm gonna go tell that girl over there. Like I just want to apologize because I was lusting after you. Um, I'm gonna say a couple things. First off, what you did was a sin in your heart between you and the Lord. It wasn't so much a sin that they're aware of that was against them 
personally, like that where it wounded them or affected or impacted them. And to go and then approach them and say, hey, I want you to know that I was lusting after you. I think that's something you need to apologize for, actually. Like, that's weird, man. Look, if there's a girl at my church who comes up and tells me, I want to say, I'm sorry, Mike, I was really lusting after you. All she's doing is presenting me with problems. Like, I don't want to know. Like, you struggle with that. You deal with that. Don't tell me. That's that's the kinder thing to do. The loving thing to do is to leave them alone. That's the loving thing to do. Also know this, that there's a, there's a weird part of us that wants to tell the other person because we're thinking perhaps this would let them know and if they felt the same way, something might happen. That's how sin is. That's how quickly we justify our behaviors and our desires. I, so I would be very scared of me confessing something. Like imagine going up to someone and saying, I was really tempted to commit adultery with you. I, I just wanted to apologize. I felt so bad. Like what, do you, what if they have feelings towards you? What have you done to them? Like, okay, so what I'm saying is don't, <laughs> don't. I think love would have us not do such a thing. And when you sin against somebody and you need to go and apologize to them, this has to do with a breaking of the relationship, not something that they don't even know about, right? There's, you've hurt them. You've hurt them openly. They, they know it. Um, then an apology can happen but I don't want to create a problem for them. So there's my counsel on that. Um, we have our full 20 questions. You guys have already flooded the comments with questions. We've already pulled 20 out, uh, the mods have, and I've got them in front of me now, so I'm going to work through them one at a time. Number five is from M, who says, Hi, Mike. As a new Christian, I'm constantly bombarded with intrusive thoughts, including blasphemous ones. I feel guilty sometimes and wonder if it's me thinking these things. How can I combat this? Okay, um, first off, M, I have heard this many times before. Okay, so I'm not a new Christian and I've talked to a lot of believers and this is not new. What you're going through is not something that is, I don't even know how rare it is because i not like I ask people, have you gone through this? But I just know several people who've gone through this. I'll give you an example of one who many of us would respect greatly, a guy named Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, who they call the Prince of Preachers. I don't imagine he would enjoy being called that. But Charles Spurgeon is uh, was was a very very effective and influential uh, preacher, um, and many you know, his commentaries are still on the shelves, even though he long long ago passed away. But he talks about how he would struggle with these thoughts, where he'd have these ideas to say, to speak a blasphemy, to utter a blasphemous thought, like it would just be this major battle for him. It was weird, and he confided in a friend about this. It was really wrecking him and really messing him up, and he confided in a friend. And the friend's counsel to him, many of us have been sharing and echoing since then. The friend's counsel was first like, but do you delight in these things? Do you, do you want to do these things? Like, do you want to have these thoughts? Do you delight in these things? And he, and he says, no, I hate it. It's like a plague upon me. And he says, then dismiss it. These thoughts are not your own. And, and it was something along those lines. But the point is that it's like, wait a minute. Look, if you have thoughts that enter your mind, whether they be desires for sin or to speak a blasphemous thing. Um, as you're worshiping the Lord, you have some horrible thought come into your mind and you're like, I just want to worship the Lord and I'm thinking this thing. To me, I would consider this a spiritual battle you're undergoing. It is not about whether you're qualified or disqualified from honoring and serving God. It is just how do I honor and serve God in the midst of this battle? First, do not take ownership of all these thoughts. It doesn't mean that a demon's throwing the thought into your head, which I think could be the case, but I, but to me, it's it just doesn't matter. 
maybe there's a conflict going on within me. Maybe it's my flesh. Maybe it's my flesh versus my spirit and there's some kind of weird thing happening. Maybe it's a demonic thing that's happening and thoughts are being thrown at me like fiery darts from the from the, the wicked one as Ephesians talks about and as it discusses the, discusses the armor. All I can do is say, Lord, I reject that and now I worship you. I think continuing to worship God and serve God, even if you have been tempted to say or do something blasphemous or wrong, is a beautiful thing that, that honors God. It honors the Lord, right? When, when I am struggling to do the right thing, that almost has more value than when I don't struggle to do the right thing. And so I, I want to encourage you, press forward. This does not disqualify you. Reject the thought. You don't have to, this is a key. M, here's my advice. You don't have to explain the origin of the thought. You don't have to analyze and self-psychoanalyze in order to figure out why it's there, where it came from, what caused it, what does this mean about me? You just reject it and you move forward serving the Lord. You stop and you worship, you pray, you do the right thing and you ignore it. So um, so don't, don't, don't feel the guilt of those things. Feel the trial of those things and then move on. I don't think you should focus on the guilt at all. Number six, Caleb McMurdy, Murtry, McMurtry says, hello, Pastor Mike, love your ministry. Thanks, Caleb. I appreciate that. Um, you say, how effective do you believe apologetics can be done in works of fiction like Narnia rather than just straight argument? Should there be more of it? Thanks. Um, I think it can be tremendously effective and I think there should be more of it. Let, let's talk a little bit about like the why or the how. So Narnia is not really, in my mind, not really apologetics, it's more like theology. So um, one of my cats is just crying. I don't know if you hear um, What is it? What do you want? Uh, anyway, you, maybe she'll jump up and bug us. The, um, the idea with Narnia is like you're being trained sort of theology. You're, being, you're ge being given allegories that teach things about the nature of the gospel and who Jesus is and all that kind of stuff, right? Aslan, Jesus, our nature, sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, that kind of thing. But um, there can be apologetics embedded into stories as well. And this could be the most obvious way is that characters just preach, right? You have a character who's being preached to going through things and then they get saved or something. Um, or you have like, say the case for Christ, the movie, the case for Christ, that's storytelling with apologetics embedded into it. Um, because you have the journey of Lee Strobel and that kind of thing. But there's also lots of other clever things you can do. And what I would recommend is if you guys are interested in this stuff, Learn really good storytelling. Learn really good, like how to how to craft a narrative, and and like how to learn what the hero's journey is when it comes to a work of fiction. What's a hero's journey? How does it function? Give them obstacles to overcome. Make some of those obstacles the intellectual challenges, and give them you know apologetic answers that overcome them. That would be that would be cool. I think that would be fine. Um, should we have more of it? Absolutely. We need more openly Christian content in every field, right? More openly Christian musicians and openly, this doesn't mean all their songs are worship songs, right? But op openly Christian musicians, openly Christian of all these different branches. And there are those who like to mock. Have you noticed this? Um, so there's a plumber who's got like a, a, a fish on his truck. And I, I've seen Christians who want to mock them for having the fish on their truck. And I'm like, you have too much time on your hands. <laughs> way too much time on your hands um we do need more openly christian stuff of all stripes all stripes yeah um next question this is from amanda krueger who says who are the 24 elders they're not mentioned in the creation account um are they a collective of people such as enoch moses etc 
Let's look up the passage here. Um, th this is in Revelation. And they come up a few times, but we'll look at Revelation 4. Okay, so I'm going to back up a bit to give us context. Um, he's speaking of, of a vision where we see the throne. So in Revelation 1 through 3, you have like the letters to the churches. And then in Revelation 4, John is caught up and now he has these heavenly visions. And so he sees the throne. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, there's four living creatures. And they kind of seem to represent creation, perhaps. The first living creature is like a lion. The second is like an ox. The third living creature... Um, with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. So you have flying creatures, uh, sort of beasts of prey, beasts of th that are predators, and then you have humans. So you've got these, these things. Um, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings full of eyes and all around them, all around and within, and, uh, and day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Okay, I, I see this as like, hey, this is an example of all of creation praising God. Right, because you have creatures from all sort of categories of creation, including man, praising God. These creatures, these things represent. Now, are they literal beings in in heaven? Possibly. I, I, I don't know the right answer to that. Um, one day we'll find out. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, here's the twenty-four elders. Okay, when that worship happens, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. So they, they have crowns, meaning they're some sort of leaders. They're elders, meaning they're like in charge of some other group of people. And they cast those crowns before the Lord, implying that he has all the authority, not them. They're giving, they give all their authority is given over to him. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will, they exist and were created. Okay, so there's some sort of like human, they represent human leadership in some fashion, right? There's 24 of them. That can be a little, a little confusing. You know why? Because, well, we've got, um, well, we have our uh, 12 apostles that are, that Jesus says they'll sit on 12 thrones. And then we have 24 elders. So maybe there are 12 of them are the apostles. And then the other 12 are what? 12 other leaders from Sometime in history throughout mankind, they, they could be um, Gentiles in general. Maybe they're part of the Gentile church or something brought together now. Uh, I, I mean, we're just guessing now, aren't we? We don't really know. We don't really know. Uh, now, they appear again in Revelation eleven sixteen. 16. Um, it says, Then the seventh angel sounded, there's loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones, fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come because you've taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Okay, so th again, th there. this is a time where like God's kingdom comes in the passage we just read. And that's when, again, the elders bow down before God because he has, God has all the authority. God has all the authority. So mankind now in yielding and submission to God, whether willingly or unwillingly, depending on which group you are, the elders do it willingly. Many of those dwelling on the earth do not. Then we have them show up again in Revelation 19. Um, and it's about the destruction of God's enemies and their smoke rises forever. Verse 4, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures, remember we read about them earlier, they fell down and worshiped God 
who sat on the throne saying, so again, they fall down. This is like their job is falling down before God to worship him. And they say, amen, alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you, his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. So the 24 elders seem to be some authorities representing mankind who is submitting to God. Possibly 12 of them would be the actual apostles, which is interesting because wouldn't that make John one of them? So what is he seeing in heaven? He's one of them, right? So wouldn't he be one of them? So it, again, it's a vision and it is difficult to fully understand. And I can't totally answer your question, but I'll, I'll read it again out loud because sometimes I get I get a little off track here. But who are the 24 elders? Okay, they some sort of leaders of mankind in submission to God, not in rebellion to God, who are waiting upon the kingdom to come. Um, they could be, 12, 12 of them could be the apostles, the others could be who knows who, maybe some Old Testament individuals, maybe some people that we don't have mentioned in the Bible. Uh, they're not mentioned in the creation account because they didn't exist during creation. These, these were all beings that were made later on or came to existence later on, like the apostles, for instance. Are they a collection of people such as Enoch, Moses? Possibly, possibly. All right, we'll go to the next question. Sebastian says, can you please explain Matthew 10 verses 34 through 39, where Jesus says a man's household will be his enemy. Matthew 10, 34 through 39. All right. Some of you identify with this passage. <laughs> All right. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against a mother-in-law, her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves his father or mother more than me, more than me, is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus is here giving us a decision between um, this world and his world, right? The the world in rebellion to God and, the, and, and submission to Christ. And we do have to pick. Um, so the context, let's, let's make it clear here. The context of the battle that happens in the family is Jesus. He brings the battle. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, again, Jesus has many sayings. You know, he, he's the one who brings peace on earth in another sense. This is, he often uses extreme statements to try to get our attention to focus on specific lessons he's teaching. So he's bringing a sword, but what does he mean a sword? In what sense? Well, it's, it's his entrance into your life that has the potential to cause problems in your family. It can heal your family. It can fix your family, but it can also cause problems. Here's, um, the context for I've come to set a man against his father and against her daughter, against her mother-in-law and all these family squabbles that ultimately come down to, do you love them or me more? Now being a youth pastor, I've seen many students come to Christ, a little slight short story time here. I've seen many students come to Christ where their parents were not following Jesus. They might've said they're Christian because they just they had to pick a religion to identify with. And so they go, yeah, I think I'm Christian. Or or perhaps they just don't know what they believe. Um, but they get excited generally. Here's what I've seen over and over with parents. They get excited when their kid becomes a Christian because their grades start going up. Their, their submission and love for their family goes up. Um, they just have better habits. There's less laziness and rebellion because they're following Jesus and he's changing them from the inside out. So generally speaking, when I first meet a parent, after a kid comes to the Lord, they first they get weird around me because you're a pastor. If you're if you don't know this, when you're a pastor, 
people find out you're a pastor, they usually get very awkward and weird around you right away. At any rate, um, Christians and non-Christians, <laughs> um, at any rate, the, um, uh, the parents get excited. They're happy. Give it six months and things change. Because now the parent, while they're excited and happy, they don't like a few things about their new attitude they see in their kid. Their kid now isn't going to watch that movie with them because their kid feels like that's not really a, a good thing to watch. Their kid's been inviting them to church. Mom, you should come with me. I think you should come with me. It'd be great. You know, like just hoping, praying that their parent will come. The kid is now not just behaving better. They're being a light that is impacting the dark that is going on in their parents' lives. And so often what happens six months later is the parent is the one trying to get their kid out of the church, get their kid away. And it's not because the church is a cult. Now, if the church is a cult, that's understandable. But certainly that's not the case in our youth ministry. And the parent often wants to get their kid out. They're like, yeah, I don't really want you going. Do you have to go all the time? I, I think you go too much. I think we should, you know, you, you need to be home more often. And that sort of conversation starts to happen because they feel uncomfortable. That's when we have to make our decision of who do you love the most, right? Not who do you love because you should love your parents, your kids, everybody. But who do you love the most, Jesus or them? And that's when you say, Lord, I'm going to obey you. I'm going to follow you, even if it creates tension in my, in my relationship with my family. Jesus is just being real about this. And so that's all he's talking about here in this passage um, we need to simply trust, Sebastian, sorry, I was looking for your name there. We need to trust that that it's okay if we obey Jesus, even if it causes people in our family to dislike us, disregard us. Like I've lost family members as friends because I'm a Christian. I've never ripped on them. I don't talk about them behind their backs or something like that. This isn't meant to hurt them in any fashion. But I've had family members who just cut me out because they know I hold to Christian values and they find those annoying, irritating, bigoted, narrow-minded, or whatever else. That's happened. I don't like it. I don't try to contribute to it, but I'll pick Jesus over man and hope that we can rebuild that bridge someday. Jesus wants us to be honest about it though. Just because you are loving people, it doesn't mean you're going to have a good relationship with them because loving God and serving God will sometimes make that relationship impossible. And um, pick God when that happens. Number nine, this is from C. Math, who says, I'm an introvert and have never felt comfortable at large Bible studies with people I don't know. Do I have to enjoy large group studies? Is it okay to stick to small studies with one or two others? Um, so, um, yeah, why not? <laughs> if you have two studies, one's a big one and one's a little one, and you're like, I prefer the small one. Like, I see no reason why you can't just go to the small one. I think the danger for the introvert is when you actually aren't participating in healthy Christian activities because you don't feel comfortable in crowds. So what sometimes happens with introverts, um, those who identify themselves as introverts, I mean, I almost feel like the phrase introvert and extrovert are dangerous phrases because, forgive me you guys if I'm off base here, um, my opinion, my personal opinion, is that once we give ourselves a label like that, we feel that our behavior is excusable in some cases when it's really not good behavior. And so like maybe you're being arrogant and loudmouthed and rude and you're like, but I'm an extrovert. So you feel like it's okay. Or maybe you're being um, unloving and inconsiderate of others and generally just self-focused and you just want to feel comfortable and happy all the time and you don't really care about others. And you say, but I'm just an introvert. So we each of these styles, extrovert, introvert, has like a danger associated with it and we should not excuse that. We should try to fight against that and realize we all have to battle the flesh. Personally, I'm not, I'm, you, you might think I'm an extrovert. I'm really not. Um, 
uh, I'm not really an introvert. I'm just uh, a normal <laughs> person, I guess. I'm in the middle ground, whatever that is. So um, if your only option for fellowship is a big church, you, you better go to a big church because you need to be in fellowship, whether it's comfortable or not. Do you have to enjoy it? You have to try to behave well in it. That's your focus, not your enjoyment, but your behavior. That would be my encouragement. But if you have options for small studies, by all means, go to a small study. There's nothing wrong with that. That's great. I like intimate studies. I like smaller groups, but better than bigger groups as well. And I would lean that way myself. So I hope that helps see math. I hope that that gives you some thoughtful things to consider. We must realize that no matter what our tendencies are, there's always a way the flesh will use that to hurt and undermine us. And we must guard ourselves against those things. That, that's the biblical principle I think I'm trying to give. Number 10, Bintley Boo says, if we don't share the gospel with our friends and family, is there blood on our hands? That's a challenging question, Bentley, and I, I don't know if I have the definitive answer for you. Let me, let me, sometimes if I can't give the best answer, I can share with you my, my struggle on this particular issue. And again, I look at you guys as my peers. I'm not like the guy that knows everything, but rather think of this as a dialogue, right? You think these things through yourself. I want to say their blood is not on your hands in any way. And here's the reasons, right? First off, it feels wrong to blame you for somebody else's salvation issue, right? But also for other reasons, um, nobody's judged in relation to you not sharing the gospel with them. So no one is who stands before God on judgment day, in my view, is going to be punished because for things they didn't ever hear about. They'll be judged based on what they did know and how they did respond to the revelation God did reveal to them. They also have, I believe, the Holy Spirit already working in their lives, even if they're not reacting, not responding, not listening, even if they're hardening their hearts and, and callousing their conscience, they still have that and that they're accountable for. So when they stand before God, they're not accountable for you sharing or not sharing. Well, if you share now, they're accountable because they heard. But if you don't share, that's not going to be something that's brought up in their judgment. Now, on the other hand, on the other hand, in Ezekiel, God tells Ezekiel as he's going out to minister to the people, he's like, you are a watchman on the wall, Ezekiel. And you need to go out and tell like a watchman on the wall who in that culture, everybody would have known what he meant. Uh, you're on the wall of the city and you're watching during the night to see if enemies are coming. And if enemies come, you warn the people so they can grab their weapons and prepare for battle. So he says, Ezekiel, you're the watchman on the wall and you're warning them that judgment's coming. And what they need to do is they need to repent and reconcile before judgment comes. But he also tells Ezekiel this. He says, Ezekiel, if you don't cry out, you're like the watchman who remained silent and didn't cry out when the judgment or the wrath of the army was coming. And he says, and their blood is on your hands. Now, the thing is, the people in the city, this is, help understand me carefully here, I hope. The people in the city don't, don't uh, die because the watchman on the wall failed. They die because they were in rebellion and this judgment was coming. But the watchman is accountable on his own because he did or didn't cry out. And that's the sense in which I go, look, the person I'm witnessing to, they're not punished because of me not witnessing. I, however, have some kind of accountability. And when you say, is there blood on our hands? You could bring up issues of like, wait, like, is God going to like reject me or something like that? Well, I think I would handle it this way. And here's where I start to get more tentative. I would suggest, yes, it's it's on your hands as a Christian. If you knowingly don't share the gospel with those who need it, 
you're, you know, the Holy Spirit's encouraging you to tell them, tell that person, go and preach the gospel, go and share, and you won't do it. And it's the Holy Spirit, not just your anxious mind. Then you're accountable for that. But that doesn't mean the blood of Jesus won't cover that sin, right? So do you get what I'm saying? It's like, yes, you're accountable, but you are also going to be forgiven. That would be my perspective on that. So I, I, I love the grace of God and the mercy of God to forgive me for those things. But I think, I think we do have some measure of true accountability for preaching the gospel as Christians. And that's scary because of how little we are preaching the gospel around the world right now. Let's go to number 11. Jonathan Wick says, hi, thanks for your ministry. Is imputed righteousness synonymous with forgiveness of sins or does God require more than just sinlessness? That is to say a positive ascribed righteousness. Um, yeah, the way that theologists, theologists, is that a word? The way that theologians generally uh, put this out as I understand it, you know, because I do hold to the idea of imputed righteousness um, is that, uh, you know, if, if Jesus, let's say that, um, we'll take the clothing analogy. I think this makes it real simple. Here you are, you show up and you're going to be judged. Um, and you're wearing your, you're wearing your righteousness on you. But the problem with your righteousness is that it's filthy because you've sinned. So it's not really righteous. So you're actually wearing your unrighteousness. So if we strip you of your unrighteousness, if we take off the nasty, foul clothing, it hasn't made you righteous. It's given you the absence of sin. You no longer have the presence of sin. The problem is that you have, you are still lacking like righteousness. Like you aren't actually good. You aren't actually holy. You're righteous as much as like fingernail clippers are righteous. They're not righteous, right? But they're not unrighteous, but they don't have any positive righteousness in them, but they also aren't unrighteous. They're just, I just, I disassembled them somehow. Just now. <laughs> They're just, they're just there, right? They're just sort of are righteous. They're just, it's, it doesn't apply the topic of righteousness. So yeah, if righteousness is required for heaven, that's not just the, the lack of sin. So we have the imputed righteousness of Christ, which is be like Jesus living a perfect life. And so that his robes are perfectly righteous and he takes them and he places them on you. He places them on you. So now you have his righteousness and therefore uh, you, um, have, you know, what he's done, his goodness is, is, is held on your account. Just as when he was on the cross, he was suffering and dying for our sin. It was imputed to him. Imputing though, doesn't actually make you behave righteous. Now this is, this is a difference between say, uh, my understanding of imputation and say, um, Roman Catholic understanding of imputation. They look at more like infusing. They tend to, to look at grace as like a, a stuff Grace is, so there, there's something called the nature grace interdependence. This is in Catholicism and in, it's in other groups too. Uh, I think Eastern Orthodox also hold to this view and it has to do with like those who like believe in um, sacramentalism. It's like you've got these different elements and things sort of like hold grace. So nature grace interdependence is that, that's the idea. Like just like this cup contains water, right? Right now I'm drinking just water. The um, the idea is that that things in nature can like sort of contain grace and grace is like a stuff and you need to like get grace. And so grace and righteousness is viewed this way too. Righteousness is like infused in you. When God makes you righteous, he doesn't just impute righteousness. He infuses you. Uh, we, I would look at this differently. I would say that rather than infusing, we have imputing and rather than, um, uh, my righteousness contributing to my salvation rather than my righteous behavior flows from my salvation as God starts changing my character from the inside out. I know I've gone on a little complicated. 
the simple answer to your question here is imputed righteousness is not synonymous with forgiveness of sins, but it does come alongside forgiveness of sins. I forgive you for your sin, but, but I also give you righteousness. And so now you are holy and without blame before me in love, as Ephesians 1 says. That's our position, condition before God. Um, so number 12, uh, Kathy Trujillo says... Um, the Pharisees were wrong in much of what they did. So wouldn't that mean they were also incorrect in thinking Jesus was trying to make himself equal to God? Um, I think that there's a fallacy in that reasoning, Kathy. So the, the, the logic goes like this. There's a lot of things the Pharisees got wrong. Therefore, everything they thought is not true. And that's a problem. Um, because what we're going to do then is we're going to look at every statement the Pharisees made and we're going to reject it. So when, um, when the Pharisees uh, say that Jesus calls himself Messiah and they're going to crucify him because he calls himself Messiah, we would now have to reject, well, Jesus must not have called himself Messiah. The Pharisees thought he was claiming to be the Messiah, the son, the son of the Most High. This is one of the reasons why they decided he's a blasphemer and to put him to death. He claims to be the, the son of the Most High. Well, they thought Jesus was the son, was claiming to be the son of the most high. Therefore, Jesus was not claiming to be the son of the most high. You see how our theology starts to fall apart if we do that? So yeah, Kathy, I think that that's just, that's just wrong thinking. Um, but also, let's go to John 5 and let's offer another point of clarity because that's where this passage is. Okay, so in John 5, they want to kill Jesus, right? Um, there's a whole thing about where he heals a man and they get really upset about it. And then Jesus says some stuff that gets them mad. Jesus answered them saying, my father's been working until now and I've been working. And then here's the verse I believe that your question comes from. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that he was God making his, uh, but also, excuse me, I, I spoke wrong, but also said that God was his father making himself equal with God. This is not something the Pharisees thought. This is what, whenever I talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, that's what they always add into this verse. They add into John 5, 18, because I say, look, the Bible says Jesus made himself equal with God. And they go, well, no, no, the Pharisees thought he was making himself equal with God. And I'll go, but it doesn't say the Pharisees thought it. It says he did it. This is the divine inspired word of God, right? Therefore, the Jews sought to kill him, right? Because two things, he broke the Sabbath and he made, uh, he said that God was his father. And then here's God's own commentary that make, made himself equal with God. So Jesus was clearly equal with God. Then he goes on in John 5, and I'll come back to the Sabbath issue, which I know you're thinking about in just a second. Uh, he, he made himself equal with God. He goes on to then say that you have to honor the son as you honor the father. Um, let me uh, find the passage here. Yeah. So the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the sin that all should honor the son. And Jesus doesn't just want you to honor him. He says you have to honor the son as you honor the father. You honor the son in the same way you honor the father. This is another uh, statement of like an equality with God. He's claiming that he is God in this passage. That's the idea. Now the pushback, I mentioned two things. One, they'll say, well, the Jews thought that. It doesn't say that. But that's just, that's a lie. This is not, you're, nobody's reading the passage anymore. They're just making stuff up. It just says this is the fact. Jesus did two things. Broke the Sabbath, made himself equal with God. Then the pushback after that is, yeah, but now you're saying Jesus broke the Sabbath, which makes him a sinner, and you don't believe Jesus was a sinner, so you, with me, have to reject this verse. And I say, no. <laughs> uh, 
Um, when you read the passage in context, Jesus broke the Sabbath in the sense, this is, I'm going to say it quickly, but in the sense that he told a man to get up, take up his bed and go home. Now in Pharisaical rules, there's sort of two Sabbaths. There's the Sabbath, which is the rules established by God in the scripture. Then there's the Sabbath, which is all the extra rules the Pharisees had added to the Bible. And there are a lot. There's this many rules about the Sabbath in the Bible. And there are this many rules about the Sabbath in Jewish tradition. It says Jesus broke the Sabbath. That's just their way of saying he broke man's rules. But he didn't break God's rules. How do you know? Short answer, because you could read what Jesus told the man to do. Take up your bed and go home. And you could read what God told him not to do on the Sabbath, which was to labor in the context of six days you'll work and one day you'll rest. It didn't mean they couldn't like pick up a heavy object on the Sabbath at all. They added those rules. All right, we'll go to the next question, which is from Library Lady, who says, Hi, Pastor Mike. Hi, Library Lady. I like libraries. If someone believes Jesus had to suffer in hell for three days after the crucifixion, could they truly be saved? Don't we need to believe it was all accomplished on the cross? So um, I do reject the idea that Jesus suffered in hell. If you want to suggest that he visited you know, like Hades would be the term I would use because I don't, I, that's another discussion. But if you want to say he visited it, I think that's probably accurate. I think first Peter talks about this, but visited and suffered there are very different things. So I do not hold that at all. I think it's a strange doctrine. I think it strikes us as odd for good reason. But, um, your question is, let's suppose someone believes that as many Christians have been taught, Jesus actually physically suffered in hell as the apostles creed can be misunderstood to say, which it doesn't really mean that. But the, um, the, 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 the person who holds to the idea that Jesus suffered in hell, are they still saved? Um, I think absolutely yes. And here's the reason why. While they don't believe that it all was accomplished on the cross, they do believe it was all accomplished through the death and sufferings of Christ. They just think those sufferings continued during a period of time after the cross, but were done by the time of the resurrection. So they're still affirming the, the sufficiency and the fullness of the, of the sacrifice of Christ. I would not at all reject them as Christians. I, I would just think they're wrong on this issue. They were my brothers in Christ, my sisters in Christ. So absolutely, they're still trusting in the full, full work of Jesus. He's the one who takes care of all my sin. I'm not going to reject them as a Christian. It's good to um, see the difference there. You can have weird things you believe, still be a Christian. Probably all of us do. <laughs> Christopher West has a question. My mother-in-law is in a gay marriage. My wife has shared the gospel with her, but she rejects it. Lord willing, we'd like to have kids. Should there be boundaries between the kid slash grandma relationship? Christopher, this is like a, a really, this is like a, 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 a minefield navigating this issue. Because on one end, you, you want to in, in, instill in your kids love and respect for grandma. On the other hand, you want to make sure that your kids don't get taught wrong things by relatives they look up to and trust. You have to navigate this as you go. I would say start out with love, trust, relationship. This is If you want my advice, here's my advice. Start off with love, trust, and relationship. If they're pushing views and teachings towards your kids that you disagree with, and they're using their relationship to try to teach your kids things that you're like, that's wrong, that's immoral, that's, that's, that's not true. That's when you say, hey, let's have a conversation. I want them to know you. I, we, we won't bring up those issues at all. I just want them to have a relationship with their grandma. Um, but if, if you're going to 
push that stuff, then I'm going to, I'm going to start limiting how much they see you, not because of you, but because of these things you're teaching them that I don't want them to hear. And I think that, that you want want to be as hesitant as possible because what we're not trying to do is break up families. Christianity should generally bring families together. It's when they insist on pushing that uh, ungodly agenda on your kids that you as a godly parent have to say, Oh, I can't really let them see that. So when possible, build bridges build bridges and walk over them and, and make those connections and build those relationships and don't cut people off when necessary. You draw some boundaries and you make godly choices in that regard and don't expect them to understand you or respect you because if it comes to that where they're like, because you know how it is. Some of these people are like, well, as soon as the kid's mine, I'm going to teach you. As soon as they're alone with me, I'm going to teach them whatever I want. These are arrogant people, right, who are overstepping their bounds and they're not going to respond well when you tell them, Sorry, there's consequences when you do that. Like, that's just the way it's going to be. It's going to be fallout. And then you go back to Jesus and you say, you know what? I will love Jesus more than you. That's the bottom line. I still love you, but I, but I choose Jesus over you if you're going to make me make that choice. Number 15, Space Coasts says, Mike, have you ever read or studied the work by St. Thomas Aquinas called Summa Theologica? And if so, what are your thoughts? Uh, read some of it, yes. Studied it, no. So um, Summa Theologica is complex and brainy, so I don't have like cursory thoughts to share on it. Um, what, it's on my list, like one of these days. Uh, I got a copy of it and I kind of like want to get to it. But the reality is that in my own studies, Space Coast Z, in my own studies, I find I have very little liberty to what I want to study nowadays. Um, I tend to just be studying whatever I'm going to teach next. And I used to. I used to have more liberty. But I decided to just devote more and more time to prepping the teachings I'm doing. And so the amount of time I put in means it's like I rarely study outside what I'm teaching at the moment. And when I do have time, I, I have this massive pile of things I want to get to. So that just tends to be the way it is. John Gibson says in Paul's prison letters, he uses the phrase, in him, in Christ, and in whom. He seems to use it a lot in Ephesians chapter 1, but also uses it in Philippians and Colossians. What does it mean? What does it mean? Um, so John, uh, the the idea of in him, let, let's just go to Ephesians 1. We'll use it because Ephesians 1 has tons of the in him stuff. And I'm just going to read through it. And then let's observe. What does it mean? What does he seem to be saying here? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Not faithful to Christ, but faithful in Christ Jesus, he says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So it's a qualifier, like, we're faithful. It's in Christ that we're faithful. We're, we're blessed. We have every blessing from God, but we have those blessings in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined, um, here we are, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. There's another in him in verse 7. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things, 
in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we've obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the spirit of promise, the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. We could go on. We could go on, but you get the idea. What we're saying is everything's in Christ. All the benefits of salvation are in Christ. So you need to be in Christ. And how does that happen? Well, you trust in him. That's in the Ephesians passage. You trust in Jesus. And then you're put, and I'm going to use the term here, positionally in Christ. I'm connected to Jesus positionally. So that as I stand before God, when it comes to judgment, when it comes to inheritance, when it comes to sin, when it comes to love, when it comes to all these things, I am in Jesus. Jesus put it this way. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me. So I'm in him. When I'm connected to Jesus through faith, I am connected relationally, positionally, I'll use that term, and I gain all the benefits of salvation through him. The predestination or the choosing of those who would be saved is choosing those who would be in Christ. Like it's all through Christ. So Colossians goes on and talks about like in him, everything or through him, everything was made. Everything's all about Jesus. Like Jesus is the star of the story of creation. It was all made through him. It was redeemed by him. We have salvation in him, right? This is all in Christ so that Jesus gets all the glory. We have the benefits, but they come through Jesus. He gets all the glory. The real star of, of your life story isn't even you. You're an extra. Jesus is the star. You're the supporting cast. Jesus is the star. That I think is, is kind of the emphasis as pertains to salvation, creation, purpose, um, everything. It's all in him. And you are relationally connected to him through faith when you trust in him so that you might have all the benefits of being in him. Does that make sense? You're, you're in him. Uh, there's more that could be said about that. I think that's how Paul is using it. Those who believe in Jesus are in Jesus. And they're, ben they're benefiting from Jesus. Um, number 17, MCJ says, MCJ, J says, if Jesus was fully man and subject to time and space, how is John 21, 25 possible? Or is it hyperbole? A lot of times when I read questions, I immediately have an idea of the passage and how, you know, where they're coming from. No clue. <laughs> so let's look at it. John 21, 25 says, um, on your screen as well. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Ah, I see. Okay. If Jesus was fully man and subject to time and space, how is this possible? Or is it hyperbole? Practically speaking, if you actually add up all of the activities of Jesus's life, no matter how detailed you want to record them in any reasonable fashion, it's not going to fill up the entire planet, right? Like of, of books. I mean, right. His three and a half years, all the other things that Jesus did and said, it specifically probably thinking about his three, three and a half year ministry. Yeah. That's not going to like, you could fit that in the libraries of the world. At least you could now. So here are some possible explanations. I've actually heard this explanation presented, which is that at the time 
the world itself not containing the books would have p potentially been a, a, um, a reference to the number of libraries currently in existence, which is pretty small. There weren't that many libraries in existence at the time. So it's possible that it literally means if you wrote out everything Jesus did day and night for three years, like all the people he healed, all the things he said, all this, you couldn't, literally couldn't fit it in those libraries. That's possible. Uh, in the New Testament, it uses the term world often to not refer to the planet, but refer to just sort of like the, the area that the author's familiar with around them. They're like, it's the world. They don't really think beyond that because that this is, this is our world, which is be just the, the Mediterranean, you know, area. So, okay, libraries in the Mediterranean, okay, maybe that's possible. But I think there's a simpler answer, and you've already given it here. You've said, hey, is this hyperbole? And I think the answer is, yeah, it's hyperbole. Now, hyperbole is not lying because everybody knows it's hyperbole, at least if they're picking up on the cue. <laughs> um, all he's saying is there's a ton of stuff Jesus did that we never, we, we, we can't even tell you. He, he was even more glorious than you know. He did more wonderful things than you're aware of. I suppose the world itself cannot contain the book. We do this all the time with our hyperbole, right? Like that, that comedian was so funny. I literally died. Now, if I recorded this and 2000 years later, somebody else was reading it as if it was scripture. And they're like, Mike wrote that the comedian was so funny. He literally died. Do you think that involved a resurrection? Because he had to have written it afterwards. So he must've, you know what I mean? You're just, you're missing it. Hyperbole sounds weird. When you go from one culture in one language to another, that's kind of how it sounds. It sounds weird. Nobody literally died when they say, I literally died, right? Because you wouldn't even be able to say it. So um, I think it's just hyperbole. I think that's how John intends it. And I think we should probably take it that way. And we're being a little too wooden if we don't see it that way. All right, let's go to Katie Moore, who says, what are some practical ways to practice 1 Thessalonians 5.7? Trying to pray constantly can be draining and discouraging because it feels like there are only so many things I can pray over. Thanks. Let's look at this verse. This is the pray always verse, right? First um, Thessalonians 5, 7. I think you might have meant a different verse because it's not right there. Um, give me a second. I will find it. I have... Bible software. So um, let's Second uh, Thessalonians. No. Um, pray continually, I think is the word I'm looking for. First Thessalonians 517. Yeah, 517. You just missed a number there. Don't feel bad, Katie Moore. I do that all the time. First Thessalonians 517, which says on your screen now, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Okay, this, by the way, little Bible tribute for you guys. The verse before this, verse 16, shortest verse in your Bible. I know what you're thinking. Rejoice always isn't the shortest verse. Jesus wept is just count the letters. But technically, Jesus wept is not the shortest in the Greek. In the Greek, it's 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. So you guys, if you want, you can really like shame other people with your Bible trivia here and just really feel good about yourself. I'm joking. Don't do that. But I just thought it was interesting trivia. So pray without ceasing. Um, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Does that mean that I am literally to pray every waking moment? Some would even say they pray in their sleep, which I 
<laughs> maybe you had a dream where you were praying, but let's just be honest. You're probably not praying in your sleep. More likely, I think the danger of prayer, even though I've, I've even used this verse for this, is I really think about it in the context of scripture. I think the danger of prayer, what we're warned about in prayer, is that you pray and then you get discouraged and you quit. That's the thing. And so when he says pray without ceasing, I think that that's the idea. Let me read it again in context. Rejoice always doesn't mean you are constantly happy, but it means that there's a sense of rejoicing in your spirit because you're always aware of the grace of God in your life. So you can still be thankful even in hard circumstances, right? Pray without ceasing, I take to mean don't get discouraged and quit praying. I don't take it to mean you're praying all day long. Give thanks in all circumstances. Again, this would just be like if you took verse 18 the way you take verse 17 that it's you have to pray 24-7, then giving thanks in all circumstances would literally mean you have to say thank you all the time. Or every time you, you okay, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this. Thank you, Lord, that I get to do this Q&A. As soon as I finish that, thank you, Lord, that the Q&A is over. I stub my toe. Thank you, Lord, that I stub my toe. It doesn't mean that. It's about an attitude of thankfulness and gratitude that grounds us as Christians. So pray without ceasing. I think Luke 12 gives us an example of this. No, not 12. Maybe. No, 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 no. Apparently, I don't know the Bible at all. So in, um, um, let me find the passage real quick. Luke 18, 18. I just thought it was 12 because I can never remember chapters. I'm terrible at that. So in Luke 18, look at Jesus's teaching on prayer and, and let's connect it to what Paul says without pray without ceasing. I think this is a connection. He told them a parable to the effect that they always ought to pray and not lose heart. That idea of not ceasing, I think, is connected to not losing heart, not being discouraged. So Jesus says here, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So he's he's a jerk. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Historically speaking, widows are not well taken care of by the justice system. They don't have anyone to defend them. They're not listened to as much. Their, their credibility is considered lower, especially in that, in that culture. So this widow, good, good luck. She has no leverage in court. Good luck getting justice. For a while he refused, for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Literally, the guy's like, she annoys me so much. I'm just going to, I'm just going to help her. So she'll go away. And the Lord says this. Here's the, here's the lesson. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus is not saying God's like an unjust judge. This is not a comparison. It is a contrast. Look, here's an example of a widow who wouldn't quit even though she was dealing with an unjust person. You know God loves you. You know God is good. You know he's just. Do not stop crying out to him. He will help you. He will hear you. It's coming. It's just a matter of timing. It's coming. The real dilemma, Jesus says at the end of that parable is, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So pray without ceasing is about not getting discouraged in the practice of prayer, in seeking the Lord and in trusting in God. That, I think, is the real lesson of 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. So, yeah, don't get draining and discouraged because you were trying to pray, you know, 14 hours a day. Um, the Christian Metalhead has a question. Hey, Mike, 
What year do you believe Jesus was born, and how do you reconcile it with the majority consensus of Herod's death in 4 BC? So I'm not a pro on this. I have spent some time on it a while back. Um, uh, I tend to think Jesus was born just before the death of Herod. <laughs> so one of the things that this this like got confusing on is this. When you dig into when Herod died, even, it can be a little questionable. I'm not saying everybody's wrong. The majority thinks that Herod died in 4 BC, but these things can get a little bit, a little bit tough to figure out the details of. So what I'm going to suggest is that in the fourth century, when they made the calendar into the AD, BC and AD, you know, terminating, there's no year zero, right? There's just one BC and then one AD. And the idea was that this kind of terminates right around the birth of Christ. They didn't actually know the birth date of Jesus, right? They didn't know, right? December 25th was not his birth date. Like there's, there's, there's reasons why they probably put it on that day. And I don't think it's pagan. I have a video on that. Look up Mike Winger, Christmas pagan. You'll find it right there. But, um, but they probably were wrong. Okay. So when we look at Jesus coming, the gospel just tells us this, right? Herod, um, sometime before he died, he finds out about Jesus. He, he tries to kill him. Jesus was probably born before that, right? We also find that when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's about 30. About. He could have been 33. Could have been 29. He, he was about 30. Could have been 30 on the dot, right? But he could have been any of those. Then there's debate over the death of Jesus that gets even harder for me to, rec to figure out what the right date is on. And I don't, I don't take a position on that. I think the death of Christ is even harder to figure out. And there are dates for the death of Jesus right, from 30 to 33. Right. Some say 31, some say 32. I think more people think 32 right now. That's the more popular view. So when we say Jesus started his ministry, if it was three years, let's say he died in 32, that puts his ministry in 29. If he's about 30, well, then Herod's death in 4 BC is not really a problem. That's kind of how I would, how I would look at that. Um, yeah. Number 20, this is our last question. Or I guess we're, we'll do a bonus question from Trinity Radio in a second. Uh, Micah Nathan says, what does the Bible say about lying to protect someone? Like if my brother breaks a vase and I say the dog broke it, or if I take the blame for something I didn't do. Micah, great and challenging question here. So, it's easy to say don't lie. And, and, and it's a good thing to say, <laughs> so don't lie, right? Um, the question is, are there ever exceptions to that rule? And uh, one day I might do a teaching on this topic more thoroughly because I know it's controversial. I tend to think, and God help me if I'm wrong, I tend to believe there really are exceptions to that rule. I think, for example, and I'm going to give you biblical reasons why. Jesus tells Moses to send spies into the land. The nature of spy work is such that you are deceiving the people around you. When they say, why are you here? You say, we're, we're traveling. We're looking for business contacts. We're, you, 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 you're not honest. God told Moses to send spies into the land. Those spies went into the land, right? Um, they also went in, in another instance, when, when um, uh, uh, Joshua is going into the land. Here we read about this in the, in the Old Testament, right, in the Pentateuch. Joshua goes in the land. Before he does, he sends spies in, and they go into a specific city. They go into Jericho. And in Jericho, they meet with this woman who's Rahab, who's a prostitute, and they hide in her place. They probably just paid her so they could hide there. She's not considered a super scrupulous person, but somehow God was 
doing more in, in the people of Canaan than we're aware of. And she knows that God's giving over the city to those people. So she decides to protect them. When the city guard comes to her door and they say, Rahab, where are the two men? She, she hides them and she tells the city guard they went out that way. She lies. Okay, but, but Mike, the Bible doesn't say she, her lie was good. But then in Hebrews, we have this. Let me take us to the passage. Look at, because I think we'll look at the details specifically. Hebrews 11. What is Rahab lauded for? What is it that she did good? By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who do not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Right? She, she protects them. She protects them. And then look at James 2. James 2.25 says more. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works? She was, her faith was shown to be true. That's my understanding of James. Not that that's how she was saved. She, she demonstrated her faith. When she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Now, it doesn't specifically say that Rahab was like lauded for deceiving the others. But she receives them and sends them out another way. They go out through, the, I believe, the window. And that same window is where she hangs something to you know, be saved later. She participated in what was deception, and it's considered good in that case. That's interesting, isn't it? We have another example. In Exodus, there are, there are the uh, Hebrew midwives. The, they're, they're actually Egyptian midwives, sorry. They're the ones who are going to help the Hebrew women deliver their babies. And these are the slaves. These are the, when, the, when the Hebrews are slaves inside of Egypt. And the Hebrew midwives are counseled by um, Pharaoh if a male's born, kill him. He's, he's worried that these slaves are getting too numerous and they may rebel. So he says, if there's a male born, kill him. And if it's a female, let it live. Well, the Egyptian midwives don't do this. And they deliver the male babies. Then they go back to, to Pharaoh and they lie. And they say, Pharaoh, uh, when we go to deliver the babies, you know, these, these Hebrew women, man, they're like, you know, they got like some powerful hips or whatever they told him. And they deliver the babies so fast. Like by the time we get there, the baby's already delivered. So we can't subtly you know, say, oh, he was stillborn. Like they would kill him without the parents knowing. Um, so that they, they lie. And then it says that God blessed them and gave them families of their own, implying that God is supportive of what they just did. So what is my principle that I'm learning? Lying is bad unless you were saving someone's life who will wrongly be killed. There's a principle I think that is true. And I think all of those elements matter. Lying's bad unless you are what? Saving someone's life who will wrongly be killed. Not rightly, wrongly. I think that's consistent in the stories that we've heard and in the, like Rahab and with the Egyptian midwives. They'll wrongly be killed. God is with those, those men. Don't strike them. This is, you don't want to do that. That would be wrong. So coming to your story, your brother breaks a vase and you say that you, the dog broke it. I think that that's a bad, a bad lie. Your, your, your brother really did break the vase, so he's he actually deserves to be accountable for having broken it. And unless your parents are going to, if your parents are going to kill him, lie. <laughs> but but don't be like, well, they'll kill him. But, you know, you know they won't. He'll just get in trouble. Yeah, you should tell the truth there. Otherwise, you're deceiving your parents and they can't trust you. Um, and if you take the blame for something you didn't do, I, I don't think that that's appropriate either. I don't think that's generally appropriate either. Generally, I think there may be exceptions to that where there's a time where it may be the right thing to do. But generally speaking, um, you don't want to be as a son in a position where you put your parents, they should be the disciplinarians and you make them instead the enemy where, right, um, unless they're like abusive, like truly abusive, that's a whole different scenario. You should get help. You should talk to another adult about this 
privately find a safe person to discuss it with. But otherwise, like you, you wanna you wanna submit to their discipline and not fight against it with those types of games. So yeah, um, that's my thought on that. I, I'd love to hear your guys' opinions. I know that's controversial, but I think it's I think it's biblical. I think I'm basing it on biblical things. All right, bonus question from Trinity Radio says, "Can Mike please play something on the guitar right now?" Sure, I'll do that. Hold on, I have a guitar pick somewhere. All right, all right, all right. There you go. What should I play? So I have this little ditty I do for um, the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And you guys may, may be familiar with that. I love that worship song. And it's more of a finger picking thing, but. sing it for you because we got copyright issues. <laughs> there you go. A little something for you guys. Hope that was a blessing. And I will see you guys on... I mean, next Friday is the next time I have actually a planned live stream. Next Friday, next Monday, we're not going to be doing anything. Uh, this coming Monday. And then I'll be back on the Mark series after that. I'm actually doing tons of reading right now on the ending of Mark, manuscript issues, dating issues, and all that kind of stuff. I want to bring a fresh teaching on that topic as we get there in the Mark series. Uh, next Monday, though, this coming Monday in a few days, nothing. The week after that, we'll be dealing with Bart Ehrman and his horribly misleading claims about the gospel.